by its border. Two on one, Stemdiak joining the rush against Brian Campbell. Stemdiak shot, scores! Scores! Lee Stemdiak's first as a Boston Bruin, and Claude Julien has his 388th head coaching victory with Boston to pass Art Ross for the top spot on the all-time list. The Bruins, in the most dramatic fashion, blow a three-goal lead, but will play Tampa Bay for But Jack Edwards loves him some Boston Bruins. Yeah, I was thinking of that like during the clip. Like, what's good for these spots are someone that kind of lets the moment speak for itself, like makes there. a good announcement, <laughs> and then like lets the crowd noise yeah, go. No. I, I wonder, like, because Jennerette, if you're not a Sabres fan, some people love him that aren't Sabres fans, but some people I could imagine hate him, like because he's a homer too. But I wonder if he does that. I, Talk he usually over. doesn't talk over the horn, but when the, when the horn right. stops, let that breathe a little bit. Go. Right, right. But yeah, I'm sure he's stepped on a highlighter too. He he's a uh, he'll go and go and go. Sure. Uh, it is uh, season six, episode eight, March 10, 2016. It's Wertheim Day here. Ooh. Uh John Wertheim joins us for spot number fourteen. Uh, the executive good. editor of SI will join us to talk about his book. We've been pumping that in the book club. We're gonna do a Pat Kane spot too. I got a few balls up in the air. It's kind of a fluid situation there. Pat Kane spot. Yeah, we're with gonna, Pat Kane. No, Pat's uh-huh. probably not gonna be the guy. But okay. I want to talk Pat Kane in the second interview, and I'll tell you more about why in three things. Um, last week uh, we had Down Goes Brown and Tass Mellis. We did an NBA and NHL thing with two Canadian guys. Yeah, yeah Tass is a Canadian, Toronto, and Sean is from. Uh, Ottawa, did you listen to uh, Sean and I fight at all? I did. What did you think of that? You know what? As soon as – I don't think it's a surprise that uh, – I don't think it's news to hear that. I'm not here for majority of the interviews. But I do, like, put the website together after you get it all done. And as soon as I saw the description, I'm like, oh, this still? I got to go <laughs> – like, I was listening to it, like, while I was finishing uploading it and everything. The argument I would make every single time is – He's so wrong. He's yes. just wrong. He the, he doesn't live here. He doesn't know what he's like, and he's assuming, and he's wrong. The argument I would make every single time to one of those guys is the best day of the Sabre season last year was the day they were guaranteed last place. <clears throat> the joy from that day way overshadowed losing the lottery. I remember losing the lottery thinking, ah, all right. I mean, our chances. We always knew we were going to lose the lottery. Yeah. I mean, the chances weren't If you know anything anyway. about Buffalo, nobody here was counting on winning lottery we had a 20 percent chance in right nobody was counting on that right and i mean i don't you admitted it in the interview and i don't know if people don't expect us to think this but it wasn't a matter of like yeah if the sabers picked first they would have taken mcdavid like of course that, yes. that's not what people deny here and that's not what he was arguing with me it about didn't either. seem like it it no. didn't seem like it so and you know he said they keep going to this thing about how mcdavid played here eichel played here like a month before and the North American prospects, right? Game. And you just can't make a and BU a is not going to switch team. their right. end of their games to here. They right. brought they brought Eichel in. Eichel played in front of the fans and and did a press conference in front of the logos, just like McDavid. Yep. It was just before in the in the uh, North American prospects game or the U.S. prospects game or whatever it is. But both were before the lottery too, right? Well before, yeah. yeah. So 
Yeah, I. That's totally wrong. And anyone that thought the mission was like, I would never have been on board if it was just one guy to tank a season for a twenty percent chance at one guy. I would never have been on board for that. Yeah, and it's like we invented the term. Like everything, I don't know. He just, I don't know. I, I still wouldn't make the argument that I'd rather have Eichel than McDavid. McDavid looks awesome, but I i mean, I've grown to love Eichel. You know, you watch yeah. him play, but I still think if they could pick again, they would pick McDavid first overall. Yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. think that's the argument. No. All right, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to do three things. We're going to do an interview I recorded last Friday with John Wertheim, which was before the UFC event. Uh, when Holly Holm lost, because we did talk a little bit about see Wertheim had done the cover story, yeah, uh, on Ronda Rousey and SI, and then he did a sixty-minute sports piece, about a thirteen or fourteen-minute, uh, sixty minutes piece on their Showtime show, which is all sports pieces. Are we going to get into UFC in the three things? I don't know if we will, so we can talk about it now. That's essentially the worst case scenario. For the yeah, UFC. oh, death. It was UFC death. I, I mean, they had a guy that was super hyped up in Conor McGregor. That they can get out of a little bit. Right. Because he went up two-way classes. Sure. No camp. And then they had a girl that... Uh, that was the killer. The biggest event maybe ever was going to be the rematch. Uh, and now maybe it's Ronda still a big two. event, but... Eh. Yeah, not the same. Uh, someone posted an interesting thing. They said it's a little bit like rock, paper, scissors. Like... Uh, Rousey style beats, uh, what's her name? Misha, Misha Tate. Tate. Tate style beats Holmes or Holly Holm, and Holmes style beats Ronda. So who's who's the best or who's the worst? I don't know. Yeah, definitely a crushing night. And John had uh, written about, like I said, Rousey and done the TV piece on Holm. Uh, so we do talk about that a little bit, but that was before the fight. So obviously yeah. we didn't get into. I heard Dana White on Jim Rome show talking about how. Like he's like, you know, as a businessman, I honestly wish they wouldn't fight. And this was before the fight happened, and then right. th- that's exactly why. Yeah, I don't know what their main event is at UFC 200 yet. It was that I, wasn't the Rousey one. I, I don't, well, I don't know. I don't think she's ready to fight then yet. Oh, okay. so I'm at it. Maybe they go to that. I don't know. I don't know what they have for that. Yeah, that it was a bad. I mean, bad Rousey night versus Misha Tate is not going to be UFC. 200 main event. No. Right. Then Misha Tate's the champ, so are they going to do a non-title? That's true. Yeah, I didn't even Holly think of Holm that. Holly Holm versus Ronda Rousey, Rousey for UFC 200? Yeah, that's true. I don't think so. So, um, so yeah, so we'll talk to Wertheim. Uh, we talk about the book. We talk about Rick Riley writing for SI. We talk about UFC. It's a great interview, 40 minutes or so. We'll do the book club. We'll do the... Uh, Packing spot, and we'll end with one last thing. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. It has only officially been going for 48 minutes, but NFL free agency has officially popped off, as they say. <laughs> Our teams are in the corners, yeah. observing. They signed their guys. I mean, 
Richie Incognito, I think, was a big deal to get yeah. them signed. And, and now the bills are essentially out of cap room. Decent price. Right. That, which, yeah, so. that part sucks. That was all their money. <laughs> They're a non-playoff team, yeah. and they have no cap room. So that like, was all their money. And yeah. the Saints are in a similar position where they have a little bit of cap room, but they got to figure out how much. It's, they got to get Breeze done first. So I didn't anticipate that would be done soon. Um, so what do you think? So Brock Osweiler bolts for Houston, who also signs uh, Lamar Miller. Oh, really? So a big day for the Texans. They get a running back to replace Aaron, Aaron Foster, Foster. Yep. and Miller, and they get Brock Osweiler, who, if anyone watched the playoffs, knows is a million times better than whatever they had out there <laughs> that day. Right. And Brian Hoyer. Uh, Matt Forte is a Jet. Uh, they lost Chris Ivory to Jacksonville. So Jacksonville will try to do a kind of uh, thunder and lightning thing with Ivory and Yeldon. Right. Yeah. Uh, Doug Martin's going to stay in Tampa. Uh, Brandon Brooks, the guard, uh, he signs with the Eagles. Uh, Mark Barron stays with Los Angeles. Uh, what else has happened? Should you give the the linebacker from Denver? That's kind of a big move, right? We're talking about the Jaguars. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, yes, Malik Jackson the signing the uh, Malik Jackson signed with the Jaguars. Uh, Fifteen million per season. Five. Oh, no. oh no, the guy I'm thinking of went to Chicago. Went to the Bears. Sorry, uh, Trevathan. I'm um, looking for the Bears signings. Yep, Danny Trevathan. That's the latest deal. So that he leaves the Broncos. So two guys from that defense are gone. Yeah, it's a bummer. Um, obviously they franchised Miller, so I don't know if that kind of. Right. Got them. Ladarius Green is in Pittsburgh. He'll replace Heath Miller. I wish the NFL cap, and I'm sure this is not original thought, but I wish the NFL cap was more like the NHL and NBA where it like made sense. Like It's so convoluted, like the regular person can't figure it out. No idea. But I, I wish it was, and the contracts don't matter, kind of, anyway. They, fake. They, they're fake, and they cut guys, and they can get totally out of them. And some of them, if they cut a guy, uh, they're screwed. Like. Because they were talking about the Bills cutting McCoy. Like, could they cut McCoy if he got in trouble from that? And they said, like, it would offer them almost no cap relief. Right. Marvin Jones got a big deal in Detroit. He's headed there, so that'd be interesting. You, Marvin Jones. You kind of called that, I, unless I'm imagining that. I think no, last yeah. week you said that a guy like him could make a lot of money because there was just nobody else and he there. he did, yeah. Travis Benjamin uh, got a big deal to go to San Diego. Chase Daniel, backup quarterbacks with the Eagles. be interesting to see. Uh, if he's there to push Sam Bradford or uh, literally just there to back him up. I, Obviously, it's a guy who's been injured. Yeah. Sam Bradford's speaking not. Speaking of the Eagles, I don't say this is a knock on any of the players, but they are really trying to shed any Chip Kelly stink from that team. Yeah. I mean, every guy except for Bradford is, is gone practically. That, that uh, Mario Williams, he signed with the Dolphins. Yep. Um, what else happened? Vinatieri's staying in uh, Indy. He's 42, so wow. he's going to kick till he's 60, I think. I guess so. Uh, what else happened? Who was the team that franchised their kicker? We talked about that last week. Was that Arizona or somebody? I believe the franchise was San Diego, maybe. Mm, okay. So Alex Henry was the guy who franchised, right? Uh I don't know. What team does he play for? I don't know. I'm talking I can't about a kicker. Claim but to be a kicker, expert, I just, but yeah, just, that did happen. Oh, no, it was uh, Justin Tucker. Justin Tucker, Baltimore. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then uh, there was a trade, too. 
Yeah. Yeah, an NFL trade. Kiko. Kiko, he's one of the guys that obviously that stink they're trying to shed. Yeah. Not that he, I, mean, I like Kiko Alonso. I don't. I'm, I don't know why. Yeah, I don't he's think been it traded. was his fault. No, I don't know why he's been traded twice. And this is a weird move. Just I mean, to move up five spots, they must see something, I guess. Yeah. So that's about where we are. I think. Um, ton of stuff going on. There'll be more by the time we post this. Fifteen other guys will sign. And so I think it's silly of us to get into. Uh, well, this guy's still left. Where might he go? Kind of a thing. Yeah. You know, because it's just we're going to get scooped right. by the time anyone even hears this. Um, so Let's discuss I, winners and losers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think Houston won. Sure. You know, getting those two guys, I think, helps them. Um, yeah, they're an interesting team. I mean, that division, too, like, they could just as easily finish first as last again next year. I mean, the Jaguars spent a lot of money on a big player that they I did. think should help them. Yeah, and, they did. You know, people forget that they picked second overall last year, and that guy didn't play it down. You know, so they're going to get that defensive tackle to start next year, the number two pick from last year, and Malik Jackson. And their quarterback, at least from a fantasy's perspective. And he's definitely progressing. He's a, Sure. Yeah, he, they're glad he's there. Yeah. So, so yeah, I don't know. Um, losers? I, no, I was, I was yeah. mostly joking. It's, yeah. it's a stupid uh, practice to even try that. So that's where it stands as we record Wednesday afternoon, about yep. 5 o'clock. Uh, number two, um, the NCAA tournament starts next week. Sunday is Selection Sunday, and this week is all of the conference tournaments, championship week. Okay. Uh, Sunday they'll pick the tournament, which may include a team from Western New York. Do you know which of the four big four teams? St. Bonaventure? St. Bonaventure, yeah, yeah. yeah. They could make it without winning the Atlantic 10 tournament. So as of right now, according to Joe... Joe Lenardi. Uh, the last four in are St. Bonaventure, Monmouth, St. Mary's, and Syracuse. And the first four out are Connecticut, Oregon State, Tulsa, and Valpo. You say, when you say out, you mean out of the tournament altogether? Yes. But some 65th team or something like that. Like, how does that work? I don't... Well, obviously there's automatic qualifiers. Okay. And then there's a certain amount of at-large spots left. Okay, so those guys would be picked at-large, though. Probably. The ones that you mentioned. Yes. Like, for example, St. Mary's has already left, lost their conference tournament okay. to Gonzaga. Okay. So if they're going to make it, they're going to need to be an at-large. I thought you were suggesting they were going to miss all the And Lenardi says he's one of the last four in. The last four at-large teams into the tournament, mm. in his opinion, are St. Mary's, Monmouth, oh, okay, okay. St. Bonaventure, and Syracuse. And the first four out. Okay. You know, the bubble. You've heard of the yeah, NCAA yeah, yeah. tournament bubble, right? Yep. Yeah, Connecticut, Oregon State, Tulsa. And I was curious when the, when they expanded it if anyone feels snubbed anymore. I of course, still must be. Yeah, and it's not, it hasn't been expanded in a long time. It's been sixty four teams, sixty five for a long time now. Right, right. Sixty four yeah, or sixty five. I guess it's just that one for years. Right. You know, so, so yeah, and you, of course you kind of you want to uh, avoid those games you can. Uh, Lenardi as of right now is Kansas, Virginia, North Carolina, and Villanova the one seeds. Michigan State, Oregon, Oklahoma, and Xavier, the two seeds. And that could change with conference tournaments. You know, maybe if Oklahoma wins a Big 12, goes through Kansas to do it, maybe they knock them out. Uh, you know, Virginia, maybe if they don't win the ACC tournament. Um, although right now there's two teams from the ACC on the one line of Virginia and North Carolina. Um, Duke was playing. It's a bad Duke team this year. They're playing. Their game is probably over. Um... 
I think they won. So we'll see if they can make a run in the ACC tournament. Yeah, they won 92-89 today. See if they can make a run to kind of improve their stock. They'd be about a five seed, I think, right now. Okay. Four or five seed. So we will have the tournament bracket in front of us. And, of course, um, we'll have someone on to talk about the NCAA tournament next week. Sounds good. All right, last thing. So on the cover of Sports Illustrated this week is Patrick Kane. Uh, it's a huge, long feature in the back of the edition written by our friend S.L. Price. And uh, it talks about the season he's had. It talks about the summer he had. It talks about his development on the ice as a player and his development off the ice as a person. I thought it was a really good piece. I thought S.L. Price reported the hell of it. I mean, when you're talking about S.L. Price, he's one of the best sports writers of all time. Not yeah. an, aside, didn't assign an amateur to this, right? Um, and I got—I know Keith Law, who's a baseball guy, was really critical on Twitter. Um, Ty Shelter from Bleacher Report, who we've had on before, was critical. And I don't understand why. I don't understand critical of Kane or of SI. Or... Well, it's one and the same. Yeah. You know, uh, you know things like Pat Kane. I mean, I don't know. Just look at their timelines. You want to? I'll bring up Keith Law's timeline. You bring up uh, Ty Shelter's timeline. We get some more context instead of just kind of throwing those two guys under the bus. Uh, but you know, Keith was very critical of of SI. Um, uh, you gotta you gotta go through some of the some of the uh, the responses and things, uh, which makes it kind of difficult but um so many okay here's the key thought quote okay so many great athletes with good stories where there are features and si picks the one recently accused of rape saying quote it's complicated and then he got into some replies with people yeah on that so i i don't know why pat kane isn't worthy of a feature yeah. I think the fact that he was accused of rape and the way that SI handles, I guarantee Keith Law hadn't read that yet. Hasn't read the piece yet. Right. You know, so I just think it's a really unfair criticism. And I don't understand it. The NHL today released a statement on their investigation of Pat Kane. The National Hockey League announced today that it has completed its independent review of the Patrick Kane matter. The final stage of which included an in-person meeting between Kane and Commissioner Batman in New York on Monday, March 7th. Based on its review, including the determination made by the Erie County District Attorney not to pursue charges, the NHL has concluded that the allegations against Kane were unfounded. We considers the matter closed and will have no further comment. And now people have been accusing the NHL of being insensitive for using the word unfounded. It's not victim shaming or poor rape culture to say a specific allegation was unfounded. Right. This allegation was unfounded. Why, why is that? What is wrong with that? Why is that so hard for people to accept? I don't know. I why don't... is it just possible that in this case, like it was in the Duke lacrosse case, uh, the Virginia case, why is it possible that, hey, this time it was unfounded? I wonder what their suggestion is that they just not feature Kane like that. 
So a guy who's going to win the Art Ross and the Hart Trophy this year, yeah. that's not a story for SI to cover? Are they framing it as a comeback? Like They're framing it as... He's having an a play, season. A player who has matured on the ice versus his maturation off the ice. How hmm. do they compare and contrast? Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's almost like they just want him to avoid it because it talks about rape in some form. No, I, I just think – I don't even think it's that. I think it's that people can't stand the fact that maybe Pat Kane just wasn't guilty this time. Yeah. Maybe that was just a false allegation. That doesn't play into the narrative. You know, it always has to be, oh, you, everyone just protects athletes and it's this culture and, you know, everyone's fanboys if you stick up for Pat Kane. That's all you heard the whole summer. Yeah. So that's my piece. I don't see – I think it's a very great article. I would suggest you read it for yourself. Let us know what you think. Uh, the Giants have signed defensive end uh, Oliver Vernon, by the way. Jets signed Matt Forte. I'm not sure if you said that one already. We did, yeah. Okay, yeah. This one is breaking $85 million over five years. $52 million guaranteed for Oliver Vernon to go to the Giants. Yeah, we do a once-a-week podcast. We're never going to keep up with them. Never. <laughs> the free agent signings. We were five minutes away, and another $85 million contract was signed <laughs> right. yep. in the five minutes. So, all right, that's that. Hopefully everyone doesn't hate me now because I supported Pat Kane there, but I don't know. The DA yeah, be hot. here... It'd be hard not to. I mean, I'd be more skeptical if it was like a college player and stuff just kind of disappeared because like the college culture is a little bit It didn't just disappear either. Right, that's what there I mean. There was an extensive alleg- right. like investigation by the Erie County District Attorney. Right. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, Which is detailed in Scott Price's story. I, I, I'm pretty comfortable with the outcome of this. Like, so. I, I'm, I'm okay with that. All right, we're going to take a break and come back with John Wertheim. Alright, our next guest is from Bloomington, Indiana and is a graduate of Yale Uh, He is the executive editor at Sports Illustrated and he made his first appearance on the sportscasters while promoting the New York Times best-selling book, Scorecasting. Well, today it's his 14th appearance, and he's here to promote his new book, This Is Your Brain on Sports, The Science of Underdogs, The Value of Rivalry, and What We Can Learn from the T-Shirt Cannon. A warm sportscasters welcome to John Wertheim. How you doing, Mr. Wertheim? Good. How are you? How, how many times did you say this was? 14. How does that compare to Lee Jenkins? That's all I care about. Six behind. He's done 20 or he's done eight? He's done 20. Oh, my God. Got to write some more books. <laughs> all right. Uh, and good, good to know where I stand. That is basically two, though. I mean, I don't think there's anyone. You, like you, uh, Jenkins, Deitch, and Wertheim are the top three. So. That's like your... Uh, our top three of all like time. Your cousin, it's like your cousin Sal. Your, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Your Chuck Closerman and, uh, yes. and Jono. All right. Yeah. We got that advice early on. They're like, you got to get some guys that are like your it's guys. Some regulars. Yeah, exactly. you got you to get that. So. Um, John Goodman and Saturday Night Live. You know what I was thinking when I was reading this book is 
on a lot of those 13 appearances, I would ask you, you know, is there going to be a second score casting? And you'd say, yeah, you know, we talk about it here and there. And I'm reading this book, and I'm wondering, is this score casting too, but with a different co-author, so you called it something different? You're on to me, Bennett. Um, it, it has a lot of the same sort of, um, it's in the same vein as score casting. My, my friend Toby, uh, who I wrote score casting with, we, we talked about doing a, a sequel for a while. He, he's changed jobs, and he's actually moved uh, to Yale now. Um, we just couldn't quite get the timing right. And I, I thought this was, it, it's a little bit different book. I mean, it's more based on social psychology and, and behavioral economics than sort of the empirical stuff. But it's, it's similar, similar vein. If you want to call it, uh, scorecasting too, I can, I can live with that. But it all goes to this idea of figuring out what about sports is myth, what is reality, and when it is reality, What's the explanation? What are the foundations? So we, we look at some things and found out that they were false. Quarterbacks are always good looking. Not true. We looked at other things that were true. Rivalry and competition really does lead to better performance. Um, and then the exercise is like, okay, now that you've established it, well, why? What's, what's kind of, what are the underpinnings? Well, I think we got to talk about the quarterbacks are good looking thing because I don't know who was grading these poor guys, but I hope they never had to take a look at me and give me a one to ten. I mean, there's a we talked about this when we were promoting the book. There's a table in there, um, and it, it's an attractiveness rating, and the highest is a six point five. Like, oh my goodness! If Drew Brees is a three out of ten, how ugly am I? I, I got to be in the negatives. Who are these people? They're the toughest these, graders ever. These are non-football fans. These are uh, these are harsh humans. They say random sampling. They may be harsh judges. Uh, most of them college age. My my collaborator on this Dan Summers is a uh, is a social psychologist, experimental psychologist at Tufts. And what we did is we basically recruited people that weren't fans, so they didn't know Tom Brady from Peyton Manning from Aaron Rodgers. Just looked at photos. There was nothing on the photos that said this was a football player, but plus this quarterback, just, you know, sort of yearbook style or, you know, almost swipe left, swipe right. What do you, what do you think of, uh, what do you think of this person? And as a class, as a position, uh, quarterbacks did not rate higher than other positions. In fact, they were towards the bottom. We replicated this a few times. We replicated it with college. And there's nothing to suggest that quarterbacks are better looking than other positions. If anything, they are worse looking, and I, I agree. Some of the ratings are probably pretty harsh, but um, that's what happens with uh, non-football fan college kids, I guess. <laughs> Man, there's some me. I just hope I never run, run. I mean, I know there's like a thing. Like sometimes, like uh, people will say, "Well, you know, she's a Buffalo nine, but if you went to California, she'd be like a six. <laughs> you know, so I don't know if there's some of that going that. on. With these graders, but man, we I was need looking, a, I was gonna say we need a we need a curve here. Yeah, I don't. I was looking at the grades, and I was like, "Yikes!" I hope they don't ever see my picture. My God, because you know, I mean, even Tom Brady. I mean, I it seems like a handsome man. He didn't even get a seven. He's not even a seven. Yeah, maybe maybe it was a photo with him in the top knot. 
<laughs> when he had the uh, he had the samurai haircut. Maybe right. it was that, or maybe it was a picture of him after he tore his ACL or something. Like uh, his helmet's off, he's on the field, his face is scrunched up. I don't know. But there was, uh, was only one photo, and it was from the NFL. So if nothing else, you can but blame it on a bad photo day. Oh, we know how the NFL what they try to do to Tom Brady. Man, they exactly. They, yeah, they sabotaged it. It was probably a picture of the of uh, the uh, the. the the little, the, little, pending. the little guy from Spaceballs. They probably exactly. substituted him in there. Um, tell me about uh, kind of like – so the interesting thing when you pick up this book or the, the one of the first things I do is you know I kind of flip through and I'm looking at it and I'm looking at the names of the chapters and I'm like I got to ask John and, and I thought of this with sportscasting or, or scorecasting too. Where do you get the idea – that this is something you need to know about. Like, where did you, like, how do you think, you know, I wonder if hockey goons get in a lot of fights at their home, you know, or like, like, is it just you and Sam in a room just coming up with the craziest things you guys have thought of and then trying to prove, like, how did the ideas for the chapters come about? It probably would be an easy way to answer, ask that question. Yeah, I mean, the, the conceit for the book was, let's figure out some of the crazy things, quote, crazy in quotes, that make sports unique, that make sports special, that make sports sort of this parallel universe. Let's think of all the things we can, from why we go nuts for that stupid teacher canon to why it seems like the best athletes hardly ever make for the best coaches. And, you know, we sort of brainstormed, and we, we had, I don't know, what we 50, 50 possible topics. Um and then sort of winnowed those down. It was the same same with scorecasting. At some level, you you come up with ideas and things to look at. In some cases, it works out. It's really neat. And you prove or disprove something, or you find an interesting explanation. And in other cases, um, you know, there's plenty of plenty of ideas that ended up on the cutting room floor, and it just didn't pan out for whatever reason. But again, the, the idea of this book was come up with all the sort of things in sports that seem crazy. Why is it that Brett Favre has the best game of his career the same weekend his dad died. And why is it that, you know, uh, we, we seem to play our best when we're playing against a rival? And all these kind of sports craziness components, and, and let's figure out why maybe they're not so crazy after all. Was there anything that was proven to be true or not proven to be true that surprised you the most? Um, I, I thought the chapter we did on the competition was interesting. And, you know, you hear it all the time. It's every, you know, high school football coach, competition brings out the best. And competition uh, is sort of good for the soul. And it turns out that there's a lot of empirical evidence and there's a lot of studies out there that confirm that, yes, when you are competing against another person, when you're, you know, run, running on a track with someone as opposed to running on a treadmill, when you're taking a test, with other people as opposed to taking it by yourself, your performance really changes and competition really does bring out the best in us and sort of the ultimate competition is rivalry where we're not just competing but it's sort of targeted and both people accept the other as a rival and it starts to be freighted with all sorts of extra meaning and there might be some history there and all sorts of things change. Our accuracy changes as athletes, our speeds go up, there is empirically, there are changes to our body, our testosterone levels are different. I mean, they, I would say, think about that. It means basically when the Warriors play Oklahoma City, 
the player's testosterone levels are different than when the Warriors play, you know, the Utah Jazz. Um, competition really does have a huge effect on human behavior, and not, not just in sports. I mean, it's same thing when, you know, two blue banjos and Coke versus Pepsi and even when we're bidding on eBay, when we bid by ourselves versus when we bid against someone else and they just, you know, their, their code name, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, Air Guitar 1523, we may not even know the person, but just having another person to compete against will change our bidding tendencies and our decision-making on, on eBay. So competition really does have this, this very strong galvanizing impact on our behavior. And again, ri- rivalry is sort of the, the peak of competition. Yeah, and you know, it's such an interesting thing about rivalry that I've noticed that can make this a little bit anecdotal is, you know, with Yale hockey, let's talk about Yale hockey for a second. So obviously when you think of Yale in any sport, their rival is Harvard, right? Yale-Harvard, it's one of the oldest rivalries in sports. And that's true of hockey. Yale versus Harvard hockey is, if you play for Yale or if you play for Harvard, the most important thing to you is playing in those games. Then there's a third... for Yale, there's this other thing, and it's Quinnipiac. And as Quinnipiac has become a national power in hockey, they have looked at Yale as their Harvard. But Yale doesn't look back that way. And it has really given Quinnipiac an edge. Um, and even if you look at the national championship season, Quinnipiac beat Yale three times that year. Because they always bring more to those games because they are playing their rivals. And they are, uh, it means so much to them, I think, partially because I think Quinnipiac being so close to Yale probably has a little bit of an inferiority complex. Um, and also, you know, that just was a rival for them in, in, in hockey. And then when it was a national championship game, and of course Yale matched their intensity. Yale did win, but I've noticed that, and I was thinking of that when I was reading that chapter in the book. Yeah, it's it's, it's really interesting. I was doing a radio show with a bunch of guys in Miami, and they used to play for the Dolphins. They they said the same thing. They said, you know, we would play the Buffalo Bills, and the Bills would say, oh, our rivals, you know, the Dolphins are playing, this is our rivalry game, and the guys in the Dolphins were like, I don't know, it's another team, we don't care about the Bills. And it gave the, uh, the, exactly the same thing you're describing. Yeah. Usually we think of rivalry as sort of mutual consent, right? That yeah. Duke hates Carolina and Carolina hates Duke and Ohio State hates Michigan. It's a rivalry for both. And they even, sometimes they even have names, you know, the open bucket game, Harvard, Yale, Army, Navy. But it's really interesting when one person or one team perceives there to be a rival and the other doesn't, that's a huge advantage. If I were the coach of the Dolphins or if I were the coach of Yale, I would do everything in my power to convince my players that this was a rivalry game because when one side thinks it's a rivalry and they're geared up, and again, I mean, everything from their testosterone levels to the accuracy on their shots is demonstrably different, um, and the other side doesn't have that, that's a big disadvantage. I mean, if if you could and if it didn't uh, dilute the exercise, I would try to convince my team every game was a rivalry game right? because – uh, again, it, it has this this impact on performance. Yeah, and I, and I think probably it, you know, in individual sports, you know, we see, when we see sometimes some of the big upsets that we see, whether it's 
Serena losing last year in the um, U.S. Open semifinal, or maybe Ronda Rousey losing, or um, I don't want to say Mike Tyson because I think that's a whole, whole totally different thing. But I think you get what you're describing here with the increased the, the it just it would mean so much more to beat Serena Williams that it would mean for Serena Williams to win, and, and maybe that again is. Sometimes it can be when you get so anecdotal, it, there could be other factors. But um, I think it probably applies to individual sports as well, I guess, is my bigger point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. I, mean, I think the way Serena Williams perceives a match against Player X is much different than how Player X has a chance of a lifetime for right. them. And yeah. So it's hard, hard for Serena. But I mean, the other thing, too, is that rivalry games, kind of by definition, are special. And so, you know, if, if it's one of these. It's a philosophical question. If every game were a rivalry game, would they still be rivalry? Um, I mean, I think the fact that they're invested with this kind of extra level of emotion and, and competition is what makes them special. But, no, I, I, th- I think it's a really good point. I think that sometimes, you know, Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholson kind of accept that they're each other's rivals. But if one team or one person's feeling it and the other isn't, uh, that has upset written all over it. You know, I don't think it was a mistake that you put the t-shirt cannon thing in the title. It kind of makes the whole thing pop, and it, it creates a level of of interest. And I, w- I was reading that because it's it's the first thing in the book, pretty much. I think it's the first thing in the book anyway. And it was the first thing I read because I was so curious. Uh, but I, <laughs> I was thinking about this, and I was actually telling – I was wait. there's a place in Buffalo called Ted's Hot Dogs. Um. And it's uh, the premi- It's the, the quintessential hot dog stand in Buffalo, and there's many of them. You know, it's uh, there's probably ten of them in Western New York, and uh, they're char char grilled hot dogs, salins. I mean, it's a Buffalo thing as much as chicken wings, uh, but it's not. People outside of Buffalo don't really know. So a co- a hot dog there is two dollars and seventy nine cents. A couple weeks ago. They did a thing where hot dogs were one dollar, and uh, and uh, I, me, my wife and I we said, "Oh, we should just get hot dogs for dinner." She had a thing. I said, "When you get home from work, I'll run down there. I'll pick them up. I'll go like four o'clock. Won't be busy yet, and uh, we can have hot dogs that night." And I waited in line an hour and thirty-five minutes to save a dollar eighty-nine a hot dog, and I said, "This is the T-shirt cannon." They totally sucked me in. They, they, they worked in all of Western New York. They sold thirty-two thousand hot dogs because people were so people went to wait in line to save a dollar and eighty cents. And that's what I thought of when I was reading that chapter. It's like, man, as a society, we'll do anything to whether it's save a dollar eighty-nine for a hot dog or, as you describe, catch a generic triple X T-shirt with a bank logo on the back of it. You're describing the foundation for behavioral economics, uh, which basically says we, we make a lot of really irrational choices with our money, and they're all sort of, I mean, you know, you, again, there's a, whole, there's a whole field devoted to this phenomenon. Why, why is it that we would drive across town to save $10 on a case of beer, but we would never save, you know, we would never do it to save $10 uh, on a $1,000 mattress. You know, $10 is $10. It shouldn't matter if it's beer or if it's a mattress, but our behavior is much different. I mean, there are all sorts of examples of that. And, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we don't value our time correctly. We're suckers for offers. We were very 
I mean, we have this loss aversion where we treat loss much differently than we treat the prospect of gain. Um, and yeah, the t-shirt can is another example that they bring these t-shirts. We go crazy trying to get them. We, you know, elbow out grandma. If they gave us these t-shirts, if they left one on our seat, we'd, we'd say, uh, no, no big deal. No one would be dancing on the jumbotron. If they said, anyone that catches one of these, give the usher uh, a nickel and you can keep it. People would have hands in their pockets. But the fact that, A, it's free, and we do all sorts of things when there's the prospect of free is on the line, it really changes our behavior and has us behave irrationally. And also when there's scarcity, when we think that there's a finite number of something, it's why every marketer knows to call something a limited time offer or special collector's edition. When we have this illusion of scarcity, that also changes our behavior. And so what you have are eight T-shirts going out. So, again, it's not like everybody gets one like a bobblehead when they walk in. Hey, if there are only eight of them, they've got to be special. And they also don't cost anything. So we treat them like the free samples at Costco. We're getting something for nothing. And you have these ridiculous T-shirts. They're not well-made. We don't know what size they are. You're right. It's not like they say Buffalo Sabres. They say Buffalo Sabres on the back. They have some bank logo. And yet people go crazy trying to catch them. I, I suspect that it's a happy accident. I don't think this was done with, with great intent, but uh, it's an awesome promotion. I mean, whoever, whoever thought of it really tapped into human behavioral and, and behavioral economics and behavioral psychology, and what you're left with is it doesn't matter how crappy this T-shirt is, it doesn't matter if the home team's winning or losing, it doesn't matter the sporting event. It doesn't matter where your seats are on the floor or in the bleachers. I mean, it's it's crazy to me. I see this at Knicks games when people are paying thousands of dollars, and I see this at you know NYU games where general admission's five dollars, and it doesn't matter. People love the T-shirt cannon. Yeah, and another thing they suck us in with is like, oh, if the Sabers score three goals tonight, tacos at Taco Bell are a dollar tomorrow. And the whole city goes and gets tacos the next day, and then you you get there and you're like, well, they're only a dollar twenty five. Otherwise, what am I doing here? But uh, again, there's a whole field <laughs> devoted to uh, the irrational choices we make with our money. And there is a chapter about it in This Is Your Brain on Sports: The Science of Underdog, the Value of Rivalry, and What We Can Learn from T-Shirt Cannon by John Wertheim and Sam Summers. We're here with John Wertheim. Uh, he's at John underscore Wertheim on Twitter. Uh, a couple more, and I'll let you go. I know you're having a busy day. Uh, I was curious about this because the last John Wertheim book that came through my mail uh, was a book that you co-authored, or I don't, I don't know if that's even the right term for it, but uh, Ghostwrite maybe uh, for Al Michaels. The, uh, what's the exact term for what your your work was on the, the Al Michaels book? Oh, man, there's, there's, a, there's a joke in here somewhere, but... Uh... Yeah, I know. We, 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 could, we could say uh, it, was, it was a collaboration. Okay, so you're a collaborator on that book. And then uh, this one is more where you know you have top billing. Your name is uh, you and, and another guy. Can you just tell me like a little bit about what it's like to work on one project versus the other? Kind of um, maybe the challenges of both? Because, um, I mean, I'd imagine with the Al Michaels book, you're kind of you're listening to stories. You're, you're transcribing things. You're... Um, you know, that helping write, maybe you're revising things that he wrote. Uh, tell me a little bit about how these two vastly different projects uh, kind of differ or are similar. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like 
I like collaborating. I like working with other people. Some of that is just a function of, you know, I, I don't have the time I once did. Um, but also, you know, write, writing books is lonely. Writing books is like a very solitary process. If you have someone to bounce ideas off of, or you take this chapter, I'll take this chapter. I mean, it's, to, to me, it's a lot more fun to work with someone. Um, the book with Al, I mean, it's, it's Al's book. And part of the challenge um, in that one is, is capturing his voice. I mean, you, you don't want to write the Al Michaels book and have it sound like someone other than Al Michaels. And he doesn't want to write a book that, I mean, it's his book. And um, so that was a different exercise in that. You're right. I mean, he, he tells great stories, and my idea was to sort of, you know, my job was to kind of synthesize those and, and turn those into a book, but also keep his voice. Uh, this book's obviously much different. This was more my working with an academic. And Sam, Sam Summers, my collaborator, was actually a very talented writer. Um, but I, I certainly had more sort of freedom and input and, voice with this than with, I mean, they're both fun projects in their own way, but it's very different writing a book with, you know, basically uh, a co-author, which Sam was, and we each had a, you know, a Google Doc, and we would go back and forth, and if something didn't sound right, and we, we worked well together, but if something didn't sound right, one of us wouldn't hesitate to change it. With Al, it was much more, this is Al Michael's book, he's not a writer, I am, it's my job to kind of turn these stories and, you know, it's like alchemy. You know, you turn these right. stories into uh, 80,000 words that are readable. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I was kind of a hired gun. I mean, this is, and should have been. I mean, it would have been weird to read an Al Michaels book and have it be in my prose. But um, trying to write in someone else's voice, even if you have a transcript of all their stories, that that's a, um, it's a, that's a challenging exercise. You know, the, uh, the books that Bill O'Reilly writes... Um, yeah right right yeah those are really he, you know Mar- marty duggard marty duggard right that and he makes i know he said it many times that you know he does the research marty and bill then writes the stories was there a clear-cut separation of work in that way or, or was it more of a you know crossover between maybe those kinds of things uh, was he doing more of the research? Maybe this isn't even that interesting. I don't know. But uh, you, you mean you mean uh, which book are you talking about? Now? With you and and Sam uh, versus the way it's. I just thought. Oh about, yeah, I mean yeah. you know Sam's a college professor. I mean he, he's terrific on the research, and he's able to sort of come through the articles faster than I am. And in some cases, he's designing experiments that I have no expertise in. Um, you know, I mean I'm I'm the one in Floyd Mayweather gym or. Uh, sitting with Richard Sherman after the Super Bowl. Um, but I, I think it worked well. I mean, we sort of have this complementary skill set. He's, he's not, he's not employed Mayweather's gym or, you know, whatever, in Joe Namus's living room, and I'm not uh, in, in a position to devise double-blind psych experiments. So we, we kind of play right. to our strengths. Yeah, and that's why the book works. Again, it's called This Is Your Brain on Sports, The Science of Underdogs, The Value of Rivalry. And what we can learn from the T-shirt cannon by John Wertheim and Sam Summers. You can find it, obviously, on Amazon, um, ebook formats. It's all over there. You can find John on Twitter. He's at John underscore Wertheim. Hey, before I let you go, uh, my Sports Illustrated came in the mail yesterday. And the cover story, uh, I, I just pick it up and I look. And it, the cover story is written by Rick Riley. I thought he retired. What? How did that happen? 
Rick Riley's writing for Sports Illustrated again. Well, can you, I'd can like you the story. Can you tell me anything about that? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what there is to tell. I mean, um, you like, know, Rick Rick's kind of a free agent. Obviously, had a very long and illustrious career at, at Sports Illustrated. I'm, did, what, what do you think of the story? Oh, I thought it was classic Rick Riley. I th- and it felt a little bit more like it was something he was exciting excited about doing as compared to maybe the end of the ESPN stuff where you kind of felt like you're reading a guy who's kind of playing out the string. Kind of felt like a re-energized Rick Riley. Yeah, I, I thought, I mean, exactly. I thought this was sort of classic Rick Riley in his heyday. Goes out, writes the hell out of it, but also reports. He had a, a personal connection, but I, I learned a lot of stuff about, you know, a lot of people are writing about Steph Curry from their couch, myself included, and it's a fun story, but I haven't seen a whole lot of pieces with that level of reporting. I thought um, I thought he hit this one really cleanly, and, and exactly, I, I think this is, this this was really like Rick at his best. Um, you know, he's he's did this. I don't think I'm giving away any uh, trade secrets here. I, you know, he he did this on a, on a freelance basis. Um, but you know, I, I think uh, the, the the doors open, and I I thought it was a hell of a read, and it was a good good match of writer and subject. And again, I, I don't think this is specific for Rick. I mean, I think this is true for all of us. There's a real difference between reporting and writing and you know I've, I've done my share of writing from the couch too and it can be fun and it can be you know illustrative and analytical but a story where the writer gets out on the road and gets into the locker room and goes to the games and talks to the coaches and talks to the uh, other family members and other subjects it's just a different experience and what I loved about this story is that it was you know it had had Rick's touches as a writer but I thought he reported the hell out of it yeah, and it, like I said, it just felt like a Rick Riley I hadn't read in a while. And people are going to accuse me of being a buck kisser a little bit, but I think of everything that's been written about the Warriors in the last year and a half or two years, I mean, the first two things I think of are the incredible piece by Chris Ballard last year uh, that was right, in the right. magazine, and then I would think of that one that I just read this week by, by Riley. And, you know, I think, I don't know, I mean, I know the SI certainly, obviously, is a, magazine with articles about everything and you've had amazing football writers over the years and amazing tennis writers but i mean nobody can hang with sports illustrated when it comes to the history of people who've written about basketball for the website and the magazine i mean we're talking frank the ford and jack mccollum and i mean chris ballard and lee jenkins i mean geez Sports Illustrated knows how to write about basketball. No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't disagree with that. I, I don't want to start naming because I'll leave someone up. But no, you're right. I mean, yeah. Jack McCallum, my my, uh, my old co-conspirator, uh, did the job fantastically for a long time. And you're, you're right. I mean, Lee Jenkins, Ballard. It's, it's been you know Zach Lowe was at the website for a long time. Um, I, I think you know. I mean, I, I love the NBA, and I'm probably biased here. The, the truth is, the NBA is great fun to cover, and the access is much different than it is in other sports. And the colorful characters are there. I mean, I think it's a very it's a very writer friendly sport. But uh, no, I mean, I, I think um, I think our NBA coverage again through the for, for forty years now, yeah, 50 years has been uh, has, has been tremendous. Did I did I spot you on sixty minute sports the other day? That was you uh, talking to Holly Holm there, wasn't it? So I'm told. <laughs> so we had a lot of fun. Yeah, I did get a 60 sports piece. It was uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, that was really. How do you like, like that one? I really liked oh, it. Oh. Yeah, I I was uh, I had you know I had already read what you wrote 
in the magazine. I think I read it in the magazine already. Pretty sure that ha- that happened first. I did a whole yeah, yeah yeah I did I did it yeah 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 but that, um a Holly piece but uh, yeah no I really liked it. Yeah, it was fun. We yeah, it was, with that one. it was really cool. I I loved maybe I was the only one, but I loved the uh, you know the SI television show a couple years ago was it on NBC Sports? It was kind of in that vein. I thought it was really slickly produced and you know it was really cool, especially doing the show and you'd have you know. Uh, ben, ben Reiter on maybe talking about a baseball story, and then that story would come to life on the um, on that show. So I really liked that, and it kind of took me back to that a little bit. But it was more obviously in the classic sixty minutes style than the, what you guys tried to do with the uh, with the NBC Sports Show. But yeah, no, I, I think um, sort of a, a natural extension for us. Again, sometimes sometimes you get a story and it just doesn't work to have cameras there or you know, the, you know, they, you do a 13 minute TV piece. Well, what I learned is you, uh, you know, you, you write a story and you're sort of choosing what goes there. If somebody says you can quote me, but don't use my name, that's a lot different than I'm not going on TV. Um, for 13 minutes worth of TV, it's, uh, that, that takes a fair amount of access and a, a fair amount of, of labor. Um, in, you know, with, with writing there, there are certainly ways to sort of pick and choose your spots and you don't have to worry about licensing and it, it's a much easier drill in a lot of ways than, um, 13 minutes of TV. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of work goes into that. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and then you don't, did you, you really didn't get to edit it, right? You kind of just turn all the footage in and, or were you part of the editing? How does that work? Um, no, it was, it was collaborative was and, okay. uh, I mean, I, seen various versions and I'm in my producer Natalie so I'll give her a shout out by name Natalie um someone my my producer she was terrific but um yeah I mean there were there were days that were spent uh looking at different versions and maybe we went too long on this scene and maybe we need to get the the parents in there it's it's a very collaborative I I mean again at odds with writing which is essentially go do the story here's your deadline here's your word count turn it in um sitting there in a room with uh, an editor and two producers and figuring out how we're going to structure this much more collaborative than uh than when i wrote the holly home story you know but by, by myself in my office uh, a few weeks ago yeah well i have no idea how you i got to figure out you know maybe it's a being an ivy league grad but you certainly know how to stretch time you know what i mean i mean i, I don't know how you how you Edit a magazine, cover tennis, write about Ronda Rousey for cover stories, uh, do sixty-minute pieces, and write books like "This Is Your Brain on Sports," uh, "The Science of Underdogs," "The Value of Rivalry," and what we can learn from the T-shirt candidates. Author John Wertheim. Very last thing, I'll let you go. We can end on this since we brought up the Holly Holm piece and the um, the sixty-minute sports. You know, you did a really good cover story uh, on Rousey. Um, uh, for the magazine. Oh, last year. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, her third being the world's most dominant athlete. It's a beautiful cover, too. Uh, black, and she looks real intimidating on it. Silver and black. It's a really cool cover. Um, and I was thinking about her uh, because they're going to have this other fight, you know, today or tomorrow or whatever, this weekend. Um, and presumably she'll be she'll be facing the winner. And I wonder what you think about her future because it sure does seem, uh, by the way 
by the way she's responded, by the things she said since her loss, that Holly Holm kind of – she didn't just knock her out. She kind of – it seems like she pulled something out of her that I don't know if she's going to be able to get back. I am not yet convinced that we see Ronda Rousey fight again. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this wasn't just a defeat. This was like it felt so. This was a lot of things. I mean, this was yeah. this was the destruction of an aura. This was physical pain. This was. I mean, Holly Holm didn't get some lucky punch in, or you know, Ronda made a mistake, and Holly was able to get her choke. I mean, this was a beatdown from the first minute of the fight to the roundhouse kick that knocked her unconscious, and that's a tough thing for a fighter to go through. And Rhonda has other options. She is very bright, and she is very outspoken. And so much of her, I mean, her, her aura was so much of the whole persona. Now that she's been beaten and beaten that badly, I, I'm not convinced. I mean, it'd make, look, it'd make for a great, if Holly Holm wins this fight, uh, and I don't know when we're, we're running this, but I'm, I'm, I may say that's Holly Holm's fight. If she wins, presumably there's a rematch against Rousey. If Ronda Rousey I mean, regardless of who wins, this rematch is going to be probably the biggest fight in UFC history. It would be a great right. sports story if Ronda mm-hmm. Rousey avenged the defeat. But I, I'm i not entirely convinced that Ronda Rousey is going to get back in there again. I mean, I, I think from her lines about, uh, you know, she had suicidal thoughts to some of the other quotes she's given, the things that I've heard sort of through people that know her, she, she's a pretty damaged fighter right now. And, again, she defined herself by her fighting, which I think is one reason she's taking this so hard. But on the other hand, she has a number of other interests. She's bright. She's young. She gets it. And I wonder if part of her is saying, you know what, do I really want to go through this again or even risk going through this again? I'm not 100% convinced we're going to see her fight again. Yeah, I'm not. I'm kind of with you there. You could just feel... You could just feel it, you know, just the way she, like you said, all the things you said, I think, is kind of what I was thinking. It feels like it wasn't just that she beat her in the in the fight. It felt like she just ripped something out of her that I don't know if she'll ever be able to get back. Exactly. You know, so. All right, well, one last time, the book is called This Is Your Brain on Sports, uh, The Science of Underdogs, The Value of Rivalry, and What We Can Learn from the T-Shirt Canon. Uh, you can get that where books are sold, and, of course, Amazon and eBooks and all those things. You can find Mr. Wertheim on Twitter. He's at John underscore Wertheim. You can find his writing and his executive editing in the pages of Sports Illustrated, which you can subscribe to weekly or download the new Sports Illustrated app for iPhone uh, or go to SI.com and find things there. And, of course, if you have Showtime uh, DVR, the latest edition of 60 Minute Sports, uh, to see his piece uh, not only Holly Holm, but the uh, UFC gym in New Mexico uh, that also trained fighters like uh, uh, James Jones, or is it John Jones? Which Jones is it that fights? John Jones. John Jones. All those things for John Wertheim. Anything else you want to add? Did I miss anything? All good. All right. Thank you so much, sir. All right. Thanks. Take care. <laughs> All right, I want to thank John Wertheim for being on the podcast today. really appreciate that. Uh, of course, uh, John joined us uh, to talk about his book, 
And I'll mention it one more time here in the book club. This is your brain on sports, the science of underdogs, value of rivalry, and what we can learn from the t-shirt canon, as we just discussed with author John Wertheim uh, and his co-author Sam Summers. So thanks to Mr. Wertheim for being a part of that. Now, a few things I want to clear up about it. Uh, One is we recorded it on Friday, so almost one week ago. Which means we missed two things. One, we missed the UFC results. And we did talk about his piece on Holly Holm and his piece on Ronda Rousey. And uh, we did get into it a bit, but we didn't know the results of UFC, as you will when you hear it. Uh, The other thing is, is I had no idea that there would be a Patrick Kane cover story by S.L. Price when I talked to John. Um, It was before any announcement that that would run. Um, so we didn't get in, we weren't able, unfortunately, it would have been a perfect opportunity, obviously, to talk to the executive editor about some of the criticisms there's been of the article. I didn't have that opportunity, so I'm going to do it now with Ed Sherman. Um, and Ed, of course, is someone who's covered, uh, the sports media for 30 years now for the Chicago Tribune. Um, he has his own website, Sherman Report, which is on hiatus right now, but he's covered media there. Uh, He teaches courses in media. So I thought he would be a good person uh, to get on and to see if I'm missing something. Uh, Because, again, I just haven't lined up with some of the criticisms I've seen uh, for this SL Price piece. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Ed Sherman. We'll get his opinions on it. It's 15 minutes or so. It's a shorter interview than we usually do with Ed. Uh, But it's something I thought we kind of needed to do because we didn't get a chance to talk to uh, Wertheim on it. And the reason we interviewed him last Friday is he was going to be out all this week. So it's not even like I could go back and get 15 quick minutes with John Wertheim because he was going to be out all week. So we'll do it this way. Next time we talk to John or SL Price or Richard Deitch or anyone kind of from the editorial board at SI, we'll talk about that for sure. Uh, So... Uh, We can answer any criticisms. And if you guys disagree with me, uh, you can tell me on uh, Twitter at sports underscore casters or email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. But for now, we're going to take a break and come back with Ed Sherman. All right, our next guest is from Chicago and is a graduate of the University of Illinois. Uh, He has spent 27 years or more now uh, at the Chicago Tribune covering things like the 85 Bears and the White Sox and golf and, of course, media. He's a good friend of the show, and he's making his eighth appearance today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Ed Sherman. How you doing, Ed? Very good. Thanks for having me on. So I had to put out the bat, the bat phone to to Sherman. I had to, <laughs> I I had to panic. I had to get you. I had to get your opinion because, you know, when it's come to Pat Kane and it's come to this, I think we talked about this a little bit last time when you were on. I haven't, I haven't known what to say or what to do. You don't want to say anything insensitive. Um, it's a, it was a serious, obviously, ac- accusation. And you never, you don't want to come off as fanboy or anything like that. 
you want to try to look at things objectively, and I feel like I've really done that the whole time. And two huge things happened, and I want to talk to you this week about the reaction in the 21st century world that we live in. So one is SI did a cover story, uh, which should be in everyone's mailbox by the time they hear this. Or, of course, you can get it online because the story is on there already. Uh, S.L. Price is one of the most respected uh, and greatest sports writers of all time. I'm not even sure that's hyperbole. Uh, wrote the right. piece, uh, a really long feature piece on Pat Kane for the magazine. And then the second thing that happened is that the NHL concluded their uh, report uh, or investigation of Kane and released a statement which they called the charges unfounded, quote-unquote. Now, these two things have caused an incredible stir. And I just don't... I wanted to talk to you, someone from Chicago, someone who studied media for years, and try to put this into perspective for everyone and for me because there's been a lot of social justice warriors right away. Uh, If you search... Uh, Scott Price's Twitter, you can find it. A lot of people um, have said a few different opinions, and then I'll let you react to them. One, uh, there's so many players and so many features, Pat Kane doesn't deserve to have one by SI. Uh, Two, the SI piece, which I know you haven't read yet, um, is a victim-shaming piece that doesn't have female voices in it, although it does have a lot of females who decline to have their voice read in it. I can tell you that. Um, and three, that SI should somehow be ashamed of themselves for putting Pat Kane on the cover of the magazine. Uh, and then it went on and on as the day got later because people didn't like that the NHL used the word unfounded. And I'm at the other end of this, and I just don't understand any of it. Like, well, I, you know, there's a lot, you know, obviously there's a lot of moving parts. You know, I think from SI's perspective, it actually, to me, it makes a lot of sense to put him on the cover. Here's this guy who, you know, had this very serious allegation against him and kind of hanging over him going into the season, and, and, and he... And he comes out, and, and he's playing the best hockey of his career. He's, you know, he's the MVP right now, right? I mean, I don't know, you know. Uh, I'm not, yeah, he's unanimous uh, winner. You know, he, he's got to be the MVP yeah, for, the, for a team that's going after its fourth cup in seven years, you know. And so it's quite a, you know, I think there was a lot of people who thought, well, you know, I think a lot of people in Chicago were kind of like, well, you know, he's going to be, they weren't expecting a tremendous amount for him this year because they thought he was going to be kind of a mess because of what happened, and now he comes out and he's playing this unbelievable hockey. And he's really hit his peak here as a guy who's already been around for a long time, but this is uh, taking it to another level. So I think, you know, as a you know, as the big story in hockey this year, he's got to be the guy. And so I think he's kind of an obvious cover uh, choice. I don't think that they you know, merely uh, put people on their cover or have writers like SL prices because uh, write about them. You know that the, you know, they write they write they put compelling characters on the cover, 
he's obviously one of them. Um, so I think for me that makes it's a, it's a lot of, makes a lot of sense that he's on the cover this week. Uh, you know, it's a very complicated story, but it's interesting in Chicago. I do have a sense that people kind of moved on a little bit. That was last story, last year's story, last summer's story, and once he was cleared of charges, it really hasn't even been uh, a big story here. And I don't even think the fact that the NHL cleared him, which I don't know how that they could have done otherwise, you could you could talk about the wording of that statement, but. You know, after the DA didn't charge him with anything, I don't know what the NHL's recourse was in the situation. I think it was probably more a matter of, you know, again, trying to put him on notice that, it's, you know, it really just takes a couple minutes of poor judgment to ruin your life, especially as a professional athlete. And this is a guy who's already had some issues before. And I'm sure, you know, this assistant scare him to really, you know, walk the straight and narrow, I don't know what would. Yeah, and, you know, you look at Twitter and it's things like, like this guy had two, this guy, uh, he, he tweets, quote, rape allegations, the new performance enhancer for athletes by S.L. Price. Uh, the NHL paid me a lot to write this biased apologist garbage by S.L. Price. Now, he's on my show, and he's very good to me, so I can't speak about him as biased. Can you, can you tell the world yeah, who I S.L. Price could, is? A, right. I think you can, anyone can read anything in any article, and, 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 but people who know, who work for S.L., what would, what would his agenda be to apologize for Patrick Kane? It doesn't make, you know, is he, are they close? I mean, he's trying to write a very a fair article. That's what their goal is. Uh, you, you know, he lays out the facts, and people can take it whatever way. I, you know, listen. I know if I haven't been through it myself, and people say, "Oh, you're favoring this person, or you're against that person." But really, you're just trying to lay out the facts, and so people will interpret um, either way. I think there's way too much accusation in journalism that we all write from this great bias all the time. And it really isn't the case. Uh, I'm sure. S.L. Price didn't know, pretty sure S.L. Price didn't know Patrick King until he started doing this story. And I'm sure, you know, that is, you know, so there wasn't any close relationship. He's just laying out the facts. So obviously, you know, you can read, you know, Twitter and social media. It, 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 you're always going to find something uh, one way or another, you know, so you can't, is that the consensus or is that just, you know, a few random thoughts out there? Probably. I'm thinking it's probably more the the latter. It's kind of uh, mixed. I, it's mixed. I mean, pardon? it's kind of mixed. Like, there's a complaint that, like this one says, he can't believe how many of Kane's buddies S.L. Price quoted. No one to provide the alleged victim side. But if they won't talk, what is well, S.L. Price supposed thing. to I mean, do? If they won't talk. And it's in there. This it. person declined to comment. This person declined to comment. This person declined to comment. I mean, there's only so many people on the victim's side. A lawyer right. that won't work for her anymore. A lawyer that won't talk because he is probably still working on a civil case, which she has until August 1st to decide if she's going to file. Her, she's not going to talk yet because for the same reason Kane didn't talk about it. You know, like, there's only so many people on that side. You know, so, right. you know, and... These are, these are difficult stories to write, but the bottom line is that he was cleared. He hadn't been charged. 
you know. I, I'm not, you know, I think that it's, you know, I mean, he went through the, I don't, and I don't have the details, and I don't, wasn't inside the prosecutor's office, but the bottom line is he was not charged. And so at some point, don't you move on? I mean, uh, you know, how long does some, what is, you know, what is the statute of limitations on something like this? I mean, you'll get, you know, you, you have arguably the most heralded basketball player of our time, Kobe Bryant, is retiring and he's getting a you know, victory lap. And this was a guy who actually was charged, went through a trial, was proven innocent, you know. Is that coming up now? Is you hear that? You know, not really. Not that I mean, I don't. I'm not watching every Kobe Bryant story, but you know, at some point, you do have to move on and and let the process play itself out. Uh, these are very complex and very sensitive stories, and I'm sensitive to it. But at the same time, I you, you there is another side of the story. And if you are cleared, if you are, weren't charged, if, you know, at what point do you get your reputation back? Um, that's a question that, uh, you know, that, that also deserves to be asked. Yeah, and I mean, she, the accuser has the right to be anonymous. The accused doesn't. Um, so, you know, right, right. right away, it's about Patrick Kane versus an unknown person. And right. Patrick Kane has to carry that. And, you know, to beat up on the NHL for using the word unfounded, I mean, to me at this point, it was unfounded. I mean, what was founded? Well, but I think that, but I think that, uh, uh, I think it would have, I think that that was probably a, I could do, I do think that that was probably a poor choice of word. Okay. They decided that reviewed his case and they, and they, 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 they reviewed his case and decided no further action was required. Period. End of story. Okay, you're right. You could be uh, right about that. Right. You know, I yep. think they could have left out the... They their their editorial the is probably not needed, right? To, to editorialize. Right. right. When, 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 once they have said, you know, we, you know, we reviewed his case and we found a no. Or just don't do anything. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, they didn't have to, I don't think anyone was even anticipating that there was anything, you know, that there was anything they could have... Didn't have to put anything out there. Using the word "unfounded" makes it look a little bit like, uh, you know, they they also, you know, were the uh, making a verdict here, and the verdict really is ultimately, in this case, is is the prosecutor right now who decided, the, you know, the law enforcement officials decided that they did not have enough to go uh, pursue this case. So, um, you know, in their eyes, it was at least unfounded or whatever you want to. I'm not even going to go there. I don't even know what the proper word is, but for them, I think to use that word probably was a poor choice of words. I think they could have just said, uh, we reviewed the case and uh, no further action was deemed necessary or something like that. The sportscasts are here with Ed Sherman from Sherman Report, or at Sherman Report, at Sherman underscore report on Twitter. Uh, I wanted to get him real quick to talk about this Patrick Kane thing. Uh, last thing, and we'll let you go. We just wanted to get you in real quick on this. Uh it seems like people have a problem with the redemption narrative. Now, I don't know really that SL Price wrote a redemption narrative, to be honest. I wouldn't describe it as that at all. Uh, but some people are accusing um, 
SL price of that, you know, uh, wow, SI went full blown redemption narrative on the Kane cover story. SL price is a great writer, but I really don't like that. Um, so there's a few people who have accused them of that. Um, I didn't see it in this piece, but Keith Allen of USA Today did sort of write a redemption narrative early in the year. Is there a problem inherently with writing a redemption narrative in this case? But is it a redemption narrative? I mean, they basically said, even the headline on the cover says, uh, the best, the NHL's best player has arrived and still has, you know, far to go. I mean, they're kind of implying that he's not, you know, as maybe the player he's arrived. There's a person who still has a lot of work to do. Uh, I think this is more of a snapshot of a guy who, you know, Listen, if he wasn't having the kind of year he was having, they wouldn't do any kind of, it wouldn't be a story if he was just having kind of a, a so-so year. The fact that he's having this unbelievable year requires some kind of try to put at least something in context to try to, you know, kind of get to, you know, put this in perspective. And so I think that that's what SI and SL Price is doing. Uh, I don't know if it's a redemption narrative. I think it's say, hey, you know, how is, how did he? How is he pulling off despite all this turmoil that he went through? And maybe he's, you know, and we've seen a lot of these guys are able to compartmentalize these issues, these problems that they have, uh, and are able to, you know, to, uh, to perform and even perform at a higher level. Um, so I, I, I don't know that it's a redemption story as much as here's a guy who's the best player in the NHL having this breakout season. Uh, not that he's already, you know, I mean, he's already a star, but now he's really a MVP. Uh, you know, for the first time, he might have been an MVP last year, actually, yeah, before probably. he got hurt. Yep. Uh, before he got hurt. So, but, but really, it was, and you're trying to put it in context. You're trying to put, you know, here's all the things that are going around. And ultimately, the story does, you know, from what I understand, does kind of say that, you know, kind of, that, you know, he's still personally as a, as a, as a, as a young man, he still has a ways to go in maturing. And, uh, and I think he probably, after the summer, you know, after what he's gone through, would probably admit that, you know. Um, but, uh, so I think that, you know, I think this is, it's really a case of this is a, this is the big story in hockey and how could SI ignore it? They've got to write it and they did. And I think they put their best on it. I mean, SL Price right. is a guy who's been in the Best American Sports Trading Series like eight times. I mean, right. I think he is literally the best writer they have. I'm not being hyperbolic, and I think he's one of the fairest writers they have. You know, right. so I, right. I, I don't know. All right, thanks. So for again, that. so you know, yeah. so like people read into a lot of these things, and there's an agenda. And I, I, and I know as a reporter, the agenda is to try to get as many to present, get to get to as many people, and then get as many facts out there and present them, and then you know, and and try to be fair. I think if you're fair and you try to present them and let people kind of, you know, here's try to educate people, try to tell them here's what's going on, here's what you need to know, and let people make their own conclusions. I'm fairly certain that, I mean, I'm 100% certain that's the agenda for SI, SI and SL. Yeah, and I mean, there's four people in the house that night. Pat Kane and his friend, the accuser and her friend. Pat Kane agrees to talk to SL Price for this story. Pat Kane's friend agrees. I'm sure uh, SL Price would like nothing more than the other two to agree. But if they don't, 
that doesn't mean he just kills the story. You know, he just right. states it well, as a matter of fact. It, they wouldn't, well, they wouldn't you put talk. it in the context of, right. you know, I mean, of, of what was said, and uh, you have to qualify it. I mean, it's one side of the story. Yep. I mean, I do. Which he does. There's a, there is an editorial obligation to not we're going to use that, or we can only use one side. I think, obviously, you need to have a witness in the house that's probably, you know, if you're a newspaper person or a reporter or a magazine, you probably are going to use it because it is. Uh, yeah, and I, I don't think he's talked yet. I think that was the first time he's talked. So. Right. All right, Ed Sherman is our main man. He was nice enough to do this real quick for me. Ed, where are you these days? Because Sherman Report is on hiatus. Why don't you tell everyone? Well, I'm, not, you know, I'm, I'm writing for uh, – I'm going to – I still do stuff for the Chicago Tribune Sports Media, mm-hmm. org, sports journalism. I've been teaching, so it just got to be so much for me to try to do Sherman Report. And I have a couple other projects, so I've uh, still got my hand in it and uh, with the Tribune and Pointer, and we'll see – you know whether or not I'll revive the uh, the website, but uh, the website was a lot of fun to do. But it just at the first of the year, I just realized I just had too much to do with all my things on my plate. So, uh, uh, but I appreciate all the interest and uh, and uh, talking to you, and uh, we'll see what happens with the Blackhawks. I think you're going to be talking again at, uh, in, in, in the June. June. They look yeah. pretty strong. Yep. So you can uh, again, you can. You can read that in the Chicago Tribune, and if you go to his Twitter, which is at Sherman underscore report, he links his articles and things like that if you want to follow his work. Thanks for the time, Ed. Have a good time in Champaign, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Steve. My deepest condolences and apologies to Olivier Vernon <laughs> for calling him Oliver Vernon. Uh, the eighty-five million should—he can wipe his tears. Temper that, yeah. Hundred-dollar bills. It is Olivier Vernon. Kind of interesting that he was born in Miami, played college football at the University of Miami, played his first NFL seasons in Miami, and now he goes to the Giants. So that should be interesting. Yeah. All right. I want to thank our guests today, John Wertheim, and our guest that is currently not decided as we record this. Don't forget you can find this week's podcast and every podcast on our website, www.sports-casters.com, including last week's episode with Down Goes Brown, Sean McAdoe, and Tass Mellis. You can also find us on Twitter, at sports underscore casters, and at Down Lake Sports. And you can email us anytime, thesportscasters at gmail.com. All right, one last thing for me this week. Uh, I might have talked about this in the past, but Better Call Saul is awesome. I was like two episodes behind, and I caught up with it last night. And, man, is it really good. Uh, I said halfway through the episode to my wife, I said, Saul's a great character, or Jimmy McGill is a great character, but this show is partially an excuse to give Mike his own show. Yeah, Mike is fun. And he's great. Like, there's two totally different stories going on, and I'm sure they're going to connect at some point but man is it good i breaking bad is either my favorite or second favorite show of all time and it's like a 1a 1b thing uh man saul is is up there it is really really good the the first season would probably be the worst breaking bad season if you put them all together but this second season is really really good now the first season has that 
It has like a slow burn. A yeah, little you bit. have to start. They have to start the story. Yeah, you know? yeah. I'm not criticizing it. I mean, I think it's just it's like picking the worst Pearl Jam album for me. It's something I I'm gonna love the worst Pearl Jam album more than I'm gonna like every other man's album. So yeah, it's, it's a very great. Good show. It is. It is. I was in just because it was a Breaking Bad spinoff, and I was in through season one, and I enjoyed it. But like the last two episodes have been awesome. I'm really into into it now. Maybe I'm just ignorant to the law. But why is it that the law firm would be mad about that commercial? I don't know. That totally escapes me. I, mean, I one, don't understand at all why they're mad about that. The one guy said like they have a reputation and some of our clients wouldn't like it. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's seen as a little uh, ambulance chaser or brow. something. Yeah, something. I don't know. I thought that too. I feel so bad watching it because... They should have found another reason for him to almost be fired. That just seems a little thin. Yeah, Jimmy McGill is a likable character, and you just know that he's going to transform into Saul, and it's all going to fall apart for him. And, uh, oh, his brother is approaching Tony Soprano's mom territory just for me. Cunt, he is so yeah. he's hateable. such a prick, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's awful. He is awful, and he's the reason why Jimmy's going to break bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, and... Um, no, it's cool. Mike has already broken bad, basically, or at least took his first giant step towards it this week. And his daughter might just be crazy or something, or his daughter-in-law. Yeah. She's a little nutty. I think she has not been able to shake the the trauma of losing his son. We Mike's couldn't remember son. what happened. We knew he died, but we couldn't yeah. remember what happened, yeah. yeah. So, All right. Great show. One last thing for me today. So the Stone Temple Pilots uh, tragically lost their singer, Scott Weiland. A uh, few few months back, uh, so not cool, obviously. Um, and as they mentioned in the Steve Hyden podcast, Celebrate Rock podcast, I think it's called. Okay, they're going to try to basically do a talent search for the uh, for the singer. They're taking submissions on Stone Temple Pilots dot com. I guess they're taking submissions. Uh, for a new singer. Now, I don't totally buy it. I kind of think it's for buzz to some degree. I think in the end, they'll probably hire a quote-unquote Some guy. Professional. A ringer. <laughs> you know, but for now, they're saying that they're looking this way. And a guy that I went to high school with, his name is Jeremy Carroll, um, played in a local kind of country band in Buffalo for a while. That's pretty popular. Uh, just always a guy out there just trying to do it with music. Uh, submitted a few j- few songs, and the interesting thing is they absolutely crossed the radar of the DeLeo brothers. Uh, they mentioned, they replied to him on Twitter uh, a couple times, and then they did another podcast uh, where they mentioned one of Jeremy's submissions and how uh, touching it was and... Yeah, they talked about it for a good five minutes or so. It yeah, felt like. yeah, they were very specific about it, uh, and I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, so here's what the Stone Temple Pilots are asking. Uh, they're asking for feedback on their Facebook page uh, for who people like. Um, so if you have don't have a dog in the race for any reason, maybe you can give this guy from Buffalo a chance. It's, Jer- it's just because yeah. I saw you comment on it, and then I couldn't find it on YouTube because I was typing Jeremy like kind of maybe the more standard way. Right, he's it's spelled got with a, an A. Yeah, Jeremy with an A, Carol with two R's and two L's. Yeah, and uh, we're going to play one of his submissions, I think, Interstate Love Song, I think we have queued up. Yep. So we're going to play that to go out. But, uh, again, you can go to Stone Temple Pilots Facebook 
and uh, vote for him. Or you can go to YouTube and just search Jeremy Carroll and you can hear all of his submissions. And he's also got a couple Beatles songs up there and some other stuff he's done. Uh, so give him a chance. Ah <laughs> 